chapter 9, verse 20, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And now Galatians chapter 1 beginning at verse 16. And was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's ask for his help now in prayer. Lord, we thank you that your ears are open to those who cry unto you. And we cry unto you, Lord. We plead with you. Send forth your Holy Spirit to cause the unfolding of your words to give us light. Hear us for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Recently, a great deal of, di of discussion has been generated in the newspapers and in the public arena and television shows and so forth with the release of the so-called Gospel of Judas by the National Geographic Society. The Gospel of Judas, if you're not aware, is an ancient document which was probably written sometime in the 2nd century A.D., about 150 years at least after the death of the apostles. And the whole point of the Gospel of Judas is to resuscitate the character of Judas and even to redefine the meaning of the atonement. Because in the Gospel of Judas, it appears there that Jesus asked Judas to deliver him over to crucifixion in order that God's plan for redemption would be fulfilled. And that Judas now plays the role of a liberator by delivering Jesus over to death, that he can flee this prison house of his body. And the result of this is, is that supposedly Judas now, instead of being the great betrayer, is the great hero. And of course, that version of the events of the crucifixion, of the delivering over Christ unto Pontius Pilate for uh, crucifixion is exact opposite of what we read in the scriptures. And so scholars have at least unbelieving scholars, have seized upon this second century document and begun to say that the whole Christian faith as we understand it today is going to be turned upside down in its head. It's going to reshape and revolutionize the way we understand Christianity. One of the leading scholars on this panel for the National Geographic Society, Marvin Meyer, said something that really caught my attention as I was preparing this message this past week in light of Paul's defense of his gospel. 
Marvin Meyer says, the text shows the good news of Jesus could be understood and embraced in very different ways by early Christians. Now the operative word in that statement is the word could. It's obvious that the word could be embraced differently among Christians. All one has to do is look across the New Testament passages and see that there was all kinds of competing explanations among many who called themselves Christians of what the gospel was. In the book of Galatians, we have a competing alternative. All throughout the New Testament scripture, in fact, you have Jesus warning that, that people are going to rise up. False prophets, false Christ, proclaiming a different gospel. You see, it was already proclaimed ahead of time. Of course, there could be alternative explanations. But you see, the implicit claim of his remarks is that it was okay, it was even good. The point he was trying to make by this, and so many liberal scholars and, and non-Christian academics are trying to make the case that within early Christianity there were no orthodoxy police. Nobody really cared what you believed about Jesus as long as you were sincere in what you said you believed. Now, of course, that's diametrically opposed to what the Apostle Paul is saying here in the book of Galatians. For you will remember what he says in verses 7 and 8, that there is no other gospel, and if we or an angel from heaven preach to you any other gospel in which we have preached, let him be accursed. The whole, the whole point of the book of Galatians is to refute the idea that there is a competing gospel, that there is an alternative gospel. One uh, group of people can accept Christ on their own terms by faith alone and grace alone. And then another group of people over here can accept Christ by faith, but plus works and circumcision. And that at the end, it's all going to be okay. Well, the Apostle Paul refutes all of that, as you have seen in the last several messages we've preached from Galatians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 11, he explains to the Galatian church that his gospel is not a man's gospel, and he's trying to refute the idea that he's received his gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. He's also trying to refute the fact, according to what these Judaizers are claiming, that not only did he receive his gospel in Jerusalem, that he altered it. He preached one gospel to the Gentiles and another gospel to the Jews. And so he's offered a number of points here to substantiate his claim that it didn't come from men. We notice that he said he received his gospel by way of revelation in verse 16 of Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. Last week we noted that uh, he went through, he, he offers up uh, several examples from his own experience how before he was converted that he was violently persecuting the church and trying to destroy it, that he was advancing in Judaism out of extreme zealousy for the law. All of a sudden, he was converted, and God uh, immediately and decisively called him to not only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but then to be a preacher of the gospel. And now he continues on in his defense of the fact that he didn't receive his gospel from men by uh, opening up his travel itinerary and showing us that it would be impossible, humanly speaking, for him to receive this gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem, because he simply wasn't around them. And he offers a couple of historical facts to prove that. He says, first of all, and I'll just go over it here in brief, and we'll go back through it in more detail, but just to give in broad strokes 
the basic argument that he's given from his travel itinerary, from his day planner, from what he was doing after he was called to be an apostle and a preacher of the gospel, he says, immediately I didn't go up to Jerusalem. No, I went and preached the gospel in Arabia and Damascus, and only three years later did I go up to Jerusalem. I was only there for 15 days, and I only saw Peter, and I only saw James. I didn't sit down with the whole college of apostles and sit there day after day, week after week, being instructed out of the word of God. I was barely even in contact with them. And then he says, after that was over, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I had no contact with the church at Jerusalem at all. And he says, to prove that he had no subsequent contact with the Judean churches, he says in verse 22, I was unknown in person to the churches of Judea. So in a nutshell, he opens up for us where he has been over the course of probably at least 15 years. And he says, only one time in the course of 15 years was I around Jerusalem. One time in 15 years for a period of 15 days, and that was three years after my conversion. Well, the force of that argument is this. There's no way that the Apostle Paul could have received his gospel from the Jerusalem church because he simply wasn't around them. So I want us this morning to look at those two pieces of historical information that he gives first of all, and then we're going to look at the corroborating evidence from the Judean churches, and finally, the oath of confirmation that he takes in verse 20, where he swears before God that he did not receive his gospel from the Jerusalem churches. But first of all, the historical details of his travel log, he proves that his gospel is independent, and you see his argument begin in verse 16. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. And then on the 17th, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. I want you to notice the importance of that word immediately. It's as if the Apostle Paul turned on a dime from his path of being a persecutor. And he turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he turned immediately, not just to Christ, but now to fulfill his call, which is to be a light to the nation. Now, he says that he went into Arabia, but he doesn't tell us uh, his brief preaching experience in Damascus. And I read about that in Acts chapter 9. I want us to turn over there just for a second. Because it's very important here what the Apostle Paul is doing. He leaves it out, and there's a couple of reasons why he may have left it out. One reason why he may have left it out is because it's very possible that at the time of the Apostle Paul, Damascus was actually a part of the country of Arabia. It's very possible that it was part of the Nabataean kingdom, ruled by King Eratos, and so it would have been fitting for the Apostle Paul to say, I immediately went to Arabia to preach the gospel, if indeed Damascus was actually a part of the Arabian kingdom. But whether that's the case or not is neither here nor there, because the Apostle Paul immediately, according to Luke, went into the synagogues, and we have a report of his preaching in verse 20. And it says, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And in verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now notice there is an immediate, obedient response to the call to be an apostle and to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's as if the Apostle Paul had received his baptism and he rose up and on the following Sabbath day he walks into the synagogue and he begins to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the verb is, here, is very clear. He says he preached, he proclaimed. Now, it's very obvious if Paul immediately walks from his baptism into the synagogue and begins to preach the gospel, it's self-evident, isn't it? that he didn't receive his gospel from any man. For he says he immediately has a gospel, and he immediately begins to preach it. So it's absolutely impossible that in between his baptism, he could have gone up to Jerusalem and sat there and been tutored and discipled in the gospel, and then went back to Damascus and began to proclaim it. Because there wasn't any time. He says immediately he went and preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to notice four things about the model of the Apostle Paul's preaching here in the synagogue in Damascus. First of all, he said it was preaching. The verb there is keruso. It means to proclaim a message with authority. Proclaim a message with authority. The Apostle Paul didn't share. He didn't just witness. He didn't offer a dramatic portrayal of the redemptive historical events of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't mime his message. He didn't adapt himself to the most modern and up-to-date communication strategies of the age in Damascus. The Apostle Paul stood up in the middle of the synagogue and he proclaimed with authority the message of the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And he did that with divine empowerment. Notice verse 22. It said, Saul increased all the more in strength. He increased. That's in the passive mood. In other words, what is being communicated here is that Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was filled with strength. He was anointed by the Holy Ghost. And he proclaimed with the power of God the message that he had received. Paul didn't go to seminary. He didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't sit at the feet of the apostles and learn how to preach. It's as if God just poured out upon him by the Holy Spirit all of the gifting and all the strength and all the wisdom and all the ability to be a preacher of the gospel. And he just overflows with an anointing of the Holy Spirit. And he preaches the word. And notice the style of his preaching, thirdly. It had an argument. It says in verse 22, He confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. It confounded the Jews. In other words, it threw them into intellectual confusion and disarray. He took their Judaistic worldview and all of their man-made traditions and this whole Jerusalem-centered view of religion, this whole temple-centered view of religion, this whole sacrificial view of religion, this whole law-oriented view of religion, and he turned it on its head and he says, it's no more. It's passed away. Because Jesus is the Christ. He proved to them that Jesus was the Christ. The word proving there is very important. In other words, he took them to the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures, and he made an argument from the Word of God that Jesus in his cross and in his resurrection is the fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. He went line by line to the Old Testament prophecies, in other words, expounding the Word of God to these people with great unction and authority and power and clarity and argument. 
He proved to them Jesus was the Christ. He proved it as fact. He didn't just simply assert it. He didn't say, well, this helps me make sense of my life, and this, this helps me, uh, it adds something to my view of reality to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that He rose from the dead. I have my beliefs and you have yours, and it's okay as long as we believe something sincerely and we have a warm glow and fuzzy feeling in our heart and we believe we're being religious, it's okay. Now he proved to them from the word of God that Jesus was the Christ. And by proving it and demonstrating that it was true, he places it before them as a fact. You see, he challenges these Jews to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that all of their hopes for redemption and eternal life are centered in Christ. You know what? You have to believe that this morning too. From the word of God, I'm declaring unto you that Jesus is the Christ. That all of our hopes for eternal life are not in what we can do in and of ourselves and through our own strength and our own wisdom and our own practice of our religion as we understand it. The only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ and through His death and His resurrection and His full and complete obedience to the whole law of God. So Paul proclaims the word with an argument. And that tells us something very important this morning, people of God, what a sermon is. It's a logical argument from the word of God explaining what the Holy Scripture says. Now how at odds that is to the way people conceive of preaching today. I was reading something in preparation for this message this past week from a prestigious and reputable magazine for preachers. And it explains the way that we ought to preach to contemporary Christians by saying, limit your preaching to 20 minutes and keep your messages light and informal, literally, liberally sprinkling them with humor and personal anecdotes. Now, this is the way that preaching is conceived of. Because what you don't want to do is bore people when you bring them to church. What you don't want to do is make people think when you bring them to church. What you don't want to do is give them an argument when they come to church. Don't throw them into intellectual confusion. Don't challenge the way they think. Just, just make it amusing and fun and entertaining and light and peppy and hope-filled. And do it all in 20 minutes. Give them a little bit of a message and then... Maybe put on a little skit or a little drama to illustrate what was going on in the message and the text. And people walk away happy. But you know, Paul didn't care about that. From the response of the Jews who listened to his message when he preached the gospel in Damascus, they didn't walk away happy. They walked away in intellectual confusion and angry because Paul was preaching to them about the futility of believing in their Judaism. All of it had to be set aside and make way for Jesus as Messiah. Well, the fourth thing, and I'm not going to spend long on this, in terms of the model of the Apostle Paul's preaching, that he was centered on Christ. Again, verse 20, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues that he's the Son of God. He immediately proclaimed Jesus. He proclaimed Christ. Not man in him improved, 
Not four steps to better living in Damascus. Not how to fix your marriage and your relationships. Not have a, how, how to have a fat bank account and get wealthy and get ahead in life. He proclaimed Christ. He proclaimed Christ because he knew that the only, people, the only problem that people really needed to resolve in their life was whether they were rightly related to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul gives us a model of his preaching here. Well, or rather Luke does. Now, turning back to Galatians, we see the Apostle Paul says, he went into Arabia, and notice he says, this is the second historical fact taken from his travel itinerary. He said, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles, but I went into Damascus in Arabia and returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. So basically what the Apostle Paul is saying now with this his second historical fact is that he preached, or rather he was in Arabia for a period of at least three years. Now, we don't know exactly, definitively, what the Apostle Paul was doing in Arabia for three years. Some have thought that basically this is an equivalent to a seminary course of instruction. The Apostle Paul went and hung out among the rocks and the mountain peaks in Arabia somewhere, maybe even went down to Mount Sinai and the Sinai Peninsula Delta, and he sat at the mountain where the Moses received the revelation from God. And that he just meditated upon the Old Testament scriptures. And the more he was there, God began to unfold for him what the message of the gospel was. And then after three years, he emerges from the desert ready to proclaim the word of God. Well, that may be the case. But it's more likely that the case was that the Apostle Paul was preaching the word of God there. Because remember, the whole point of this section here in Galatians chapter 1 is that the Apostle Paul received the call to preach and then he immediately went and did it. See, that's the whole point of the argument here. Is that not just did he meet Christ and, and that he was saved by Christ and believed in Christ, but then he went and preached Christ. And because he went and preached Christ, he's saying there was no chance for him to receive this message from Jerusalem. There's also an event that happened. We could turn back to Acts chapter 9 again to show you there was a very interesting event that occurred here which may confirm for us that the Apostle Paul was in fact preaching the gospel there in Arabia because it says in verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now Paul comments on that very same experience in 2 Corinthians 11.32. And he says, At Damascus the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize Paul. And then he goes on, verse 33, to relate the very same way of escape, which was being lowered over the wall of Damascus in a basket, and he was sent on to Jerusalem from there. But you see, one reason why that may indicate to us that the Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel in Arabia is because you have to account for why the king of Arabia was so angry with the Apostle Paul that he wanted to seize him and take his life. 
Yet Paul was just sitting somewhere on a mountaintop in the Sinai Peninsula, meditating and praying and receiving revelation from God. Why would the king of Arabia be upset with him? Well, the king of Arabia was upset with him because the Apostle Paul was going most likely through the major metropolitan areas of the kingdom of Arabia, and he was preaching Christ in the synagogues and stirring up the people. Remember, wherever the Apostle Paul goes and preaches the word of God, it almost immediately results in persecution. It almost immediately results in community uproar and division. Family members are set against each other. Religious leaders are angry and set against each other. Believers or devout followers of other religions are divided, angry and upset. Seems that the Apostle Paul, according to the Word of God, went immediately into Arabia, Damascus, and the surrounding areas and preached the gospel in response to his call. I think there's an application in there for us as Christians, although we cannot confuse Paul's unique calling with our own. It seems that those who are genuinely and really converted almost naturally and spontaneously begin to testify about Christ. One commentator put it like this. He says, Evangelism is not some optional extra. It's the inevitable result of real conversion. Did you hear that? Evangelism is not some optional extra. It is the inevitable result of real conversion. Remember when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, when, when you realize that uh, one moment ago that you were lost in your sins and your misery and you were rebelling against God and you were sinning against His commandments and you weren't listening to His divine authoritative message and then all of a sudden something radically uh, powerful begins to happen in your soul. The lights begin to go on in your mind. You begin to see the whole world differently. You begin to understand you're a sinner. You begin to realize you're under the wrath and curse of God. You begin to realize that Jesus Christ and His blood and His righteousness is the only hope of eternal life and justification. And all of a sudden by faith you lay hold of Him and you throw away everything you were doing in your old former life. And now you come to Him and you submit to Him and something wonderful and new happens to you. You've been regenerated. Your whole life is different. Your attitudes are different. Your emotions are different. Everything is new. What do you want to do when that happens? When people are changed, when they are renewed, when they are converted, when they are regenerated, when they finally meet Christ savingly, what do they want to do? But they want to overflow with testimony about what Christ has done to them. People of God, that is the natural response. Whether we're in a mission work or an established congregation, the natural impulsive response of real Christians who've been saved by grace is to not hide these words in their heart, just contemplate it for themselves as true and how this has really made their life now so meaningful and full of purpose. It does do all that. But it makes us want to tell what Christ has done. People of God, if we are genuine in our conversion, we will be testifying about Christ. We'll be testifying him about Him by our lives and with our words and with our mouths. It will be 
the, the burden of our heart to reach people for Christ. It will fill our prayer life with new meaning. We'll be on our knees pleading with God in prayer. Would you help me be able to tell somebody about Christ? You cannot hold this message in. I want to challenge you this morning, if your life has gone astray, if you have lost the commitment that should have come with your conversion, which is to not keep this news for yourself, but to proclaim it to others, I challenge you this morning from the Word of God that you need to reorient your priorities so that you take time to pray to God and ask Him to give you opportunity to testify about Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. Paul immediately upon conversion proclaimed Christ. It's a model for all Christians. Well, the second thing that the Apostle Paul points out here now in defending the fact that his gospel is not from men, it's not from the Jerusalem church, is he tells us now in verse 18 that he did go up to Jerusalem. Notice here what it says. After three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Yeah, it's very interesting here. Now Paul does concede that he did go up to Jerusalem. It was three years later, and he says the express purpose for his visit was to go make friends with Peter. The word there in the original is a word which is used to refer to situations in which we intentionally go and meet with somebody for the very purpose of cultivating a relationship. He doesn't say, I knew Peter was a renowned, revered apostle. He doesn't say, I knew Peter was, was the authority in the church of God, so I desired to go sit at his feet and listen to what the apostle Peter had to say. He doesn't say that at all. Peter was nothing in and of himself, any more of an apostle than the apostle Paul was. He says, I went to him to get to know him as a friend. He says a byproduct of that visit is that he also had the opportunity to go visit with James, who was the Lord's brother. We don't have time to talk about the fact that Jesus had many other brothers and so forth and so on. All the implications which are in this verse here about Christ and his siblings and so forth. But it's very interesting that James here is considered an apostle and a believer. When all the evidence of the Gospels shows that James was a real skeptic of Christ all throughout his public ministry. Remember, James was there when, when Mary and the rest of Jesus' brothers were standing outside of Capernaum when the crowds were flocking unto Jesus and they were there ready to take him away because they believed that he was delusional. The Gospel of John it describes Jesus' brothers as scoffing and disbelieving that Jesus was the Christ. They thought he was gone mad and that, that he was crazy. But you see, something happened to James because the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. And it doesn't tell us anything more than that, but I think we can learn everything that we need to know from that. 
Because when Jesus appeared to James after he was resurrected from the dead, it made all the difference in the world to James. James realized that this was no earthly, normal brother. But that Jesus was truly the Messiah. James is, if we can rely upon the testimony of the ancient fathers and many of the traditions of the early church, became a very devout and faithful leader in the church of God and was martyred for his faith in Christ because he believed that Jesus was no brother, but that he was the Messiah. So Paul says, I went and I visited with Peter and with James and no other apostles. And then I didn't go back up to Jerusalem again. That's confirmed by something in the narrative here in verse 21. It says, then I went up to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. We know he must have stayed there for quite a while because when you... You go forward in the narrative in Acts, the chapter 11, you see that Barnabas, after he'd been in Antioch for a while, goes down to Tarsus, which is in Cilicia, to retrieve Paul to bring him back to Antioch so he can teach the word there. So it seems for a space of at least 10 years, Paul was in Syria and Cilicia preaching the word. And Paul says, I never went back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem never really played a big factor in his thinking about things, in other words. It says here the churches of Judea, though they didn't know Paul to the face, were saying in verse 23, they were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Notice how that confirms Paul's point. You know, if the Apostle Paul had lived in Jerusalem, all the churches in the surrounding vicinity would have known him to the face. They would have known him personally. If he had been an understudy of the Apostles in Jerusalem, you can bet that they would have sent him out to preach among the Judean churches. And you can bet that those churches would have had the experience of seeing him in person and listening to him preach and to expound the Word of God. But Paul says these churches don't know him. But notice something very important that he says here about him. They were saying, he's heard the reports of what these churches were saying. And they were saying, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith. You see, they're glorifying God because of the fact the Apostle Paul is preaching the faith. Paul didn't leave the Jerusalem area after his visit with Peter and James and then go out to some other churches in Syria and Cilicia and begin to preach an opposite message because the Judean churches had heard he was preaching the faith wherever he went. The only reason why the churches were rejoicing is because this persecutor was proclaiming the very faith which they hold in common. One faith, one way of salvation, one hope, one Messiah, one means of justification. Faith alone. And the churches were rejoicing in it. Paul makes one last point here in confirming the fact that his message does not come from men. Look at verse 20. This is a very important and almost unusual thing to do. Paul does it a few times in his epistles, not often, but when it's weighty. Look at what he says in verse 20. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. 
Paul is swearing an oath. He's saying before God and these witnesses, everything I'm telling you about how I received my gospel and where I preached my gospel and when I went to Jerusalem and how little time I spent there and how little interaction I had with Peter and James and no other apostles, he's saying, I raise my right hand, I place my other hand in the Bible, and I swear before God that I never received my message from men. He takes an oath. He says, I'm telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. These are the facts. When I was saved, I immediately began to proclaim the gospel. When I was saved, I went into Arabia and I preached the gospel. Only after three years did I go to Jerusalem. And I spent the rest of my time among the Gentiles again preaching the gospel. But you have to understand how important this was for him to do this. Culturally, to take an oath in the Greco-Roman Empire was to put an end to an argument. If there was a court case between two people who were at odds with each other, and a jury of their peers could not decisively determine the truth of a matter, if somebody would take an oath and say, I swear before God that these are the facts and nothing but the facts, and all of the facts, it ended the dispute entirely, and it was put to rest. You see, when somebody took an oath, they, they only did it for the most weighty matters, and they, they did it upon the pain of death. If they were shown to be wrong, they would have been executed. I mean, it was as if there's no other way to verify the facts or the truth of a matter more ultimately than to take an oath. The Apostle Paul here, it, it's as if he's like pulling out his last straw in the case of the Galatians to prove to them there's not alternative Gospels. There's only one. There's only one faith. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way to salvation. There's only one justification. It's in Christ and Him alone. It's by faith alone. It's through grace alone. Paul says, I received that whole message from God alone and not a man. And he confirms then the fact of his message, the the component parts of his message, the details of his message, and of his preaching with an oath. And it was designed to bring to an end the dispute. The Galatians would have recognized it. It would have put an end to the controversy and the discussion. I want you to know this morning, as we think about the application of Galatians to our own lives and to the people around us, is that you know, we have a gospel which has been oath certified. We have a gospel which has been received from heaven, given to the apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and there's no reason why anybody should reject it. It comes as a demand to sinners. They need to account for why they would reject it. It's O-certified. There's no excuse for it. It lacks no facts or evidence. But finally, to tie it back into our introduction, the, the new re newly released gospel of Judas and the claim that the early church could and did embrace divergent understandings of the gospel, we are strengthened by Paul's narrative here this morning from the facts of his 
missionary activities, from his interaction briefly with the apostles in Jerusalem, with the rest of his missionary journeys and preaching in the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and all the apostle Paul says here, by the fact that he takes an oath, we have confidence this morning to not be shaken. We have confidence to not be shaken by the authoritative proclamations of liberal, unbelieving scholars who would like to make the case that Christianity really has no definitive or defined message. It's just sort of whatever any particular group wants to sincerely believe. And as long as they hold to it in a heartfelt, sincere way, it's okay what they believe. There aren't alternative Gospels. There aren't alternative historical accounts to what happened when Jesus was handed over to be crucified. Judas is not a liberator. Christ did not long to be liberated from the flesh. God's plan of redemption is grounded in historical facts. Christ was delivered over to the cross by the determinate counsel and will of God in order that he might pay the penalty for our sins, to exhaust the wrath and curse of God for them, to deliver us from this present evil age, and to open the gates of eternal life for his people. So this morning, as we listen to Paul's autobiographical narrative of how he received his message and what he did with it when he received it, we have confidence to know there's only one gospel, there's only one Christ. There's only one way of salvation. And we can count on it. Because of it. Oh, sanctioned gospel that Paul proclaims. Because of his autobiographical defense of the divine origins of his gospel. Amen.